Today's scripture comes from Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Think with me for a moment on the last two presidential elections. Eight years ago, Obama gets elected, and there are some people that are weeping for joy that he got elected, thinking that this is finally the person that's going to um, take care of the, the mess that our country's in. There were others eight years ago that were in absolute despair after Obama got elected. A couple months ago, think with me, when Trump got elected, there were some that were jumping for joy that this was finally the person that was going to fix our country's problems. There were others that thought doomsday had come, that this was the end of our country, that, that things were, were going to go downhill quickly. What's fascinating that you look at both of those presidential elections, there were Christians on either side. And so you have to ask the question, why, why such strong reactions and why such different reactions? Well, the reason that there are such strong re reactions, and this happens after really every presidential election, but the reason there are such strong reactions is because there is something deep within us that longs for justice, <laughs> that longs for things to be made right in this country. We see what's wrong. It's all around us. But why such different reactions? That's because we all have opinions of what's right and what's wrong, at least on the priority list. And we all have opinions of how it should be fixed. And so inevitably, after every presidential election, there are people that are disappointed. And even after a president's terms, uh, term, term, there's people that are disappointed and, and longing for maybe the next one will fix it. Every four years, there's an endless cycle of this. And it doesn't get fixed. <laughs> now, I don't devalue the need for a strong president and leadership and for us to be involved in voting. That's all very important. 
But what we see and what we've seen throughout history is that there is no human institution, there's no government, there's no man, there's no president that can ultimately fix the problems that we have in this country or in this world. No human institution or government can bring justice. Only God can. Now, here's the question we're going to ask. How does then God bring justice to his world? More specifically, how does the cross, how does the cross accomplish God's justice in the world? That's what Romans 3, our passage, is all about. We're going to look at the author of justice, the need for justice, and the execution of justice. Now, let's start with the author of justice. Where does the concept of justice come from? Where does even the idea that there's right and wrong, where does that come from? Now, in our, in our post-Christian and post-modern or post-postmodern, wherever we're at, culture, it's, there is no right and wrong, right? The, the, the culture says, no, you, you decide what's right and wrong for yourself. So everyone decides right and wrong. And, and who are you to... to step on somebody else and say, no, your version of right and wrong is wrong, right? So it's just this, it's this tolerance. That works until you've actually been wronged. Let me give you a, a, an illustration of this. Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, he, he wrote about an encounter he had with a student at the University of Vermont. He was in the dorm, and the student, the student said to him, Whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. If something works for you because you believe it, that's great, but no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. So as Moreland left, he unplugged this student's stereo and he started walking out with it. And the student said, hey, what are you doing? You can't do that. And, uh, and Moreland replied, he said, oh, wait a minute, are you, are you forcing on me your belief that it's wrong to take someone's stereo? And they actually went on and actually had a very fruitful gospel conversation. But, but the point is, we can talk about making right and wrong for yourself, but that, that only works until somebody steals what belongs to you or violates your rights, right? So we really live in a culture with selective moral relativity. In other words, it's, it's you can decide right and wrong for yourself as long as it doesn't affect me. Okay? The concept of justice, the fact that we even talk about right and wrong comes from the righteousness of God. We see this, verses 25 and 26. Two times it says this was to show God's righteousness so that he may be just or right or holy, right? The concept of right and wrong flows out of a righteous God, a moral law giver. If you look at the world, the fact that there is some degree, though there are variations culture to culture, but there are, there are universal absolutes of right and wrong, says that there's a moral law giver, that there's a righteous God, a right God, a holy God, a perfect God. So all the moral laws that flow out in the scriptures, but that even are in our world, flow from a perfect God a righteous God, a holy God. It flows out of his character. Human institutions are not the author of justice. Whether it be an institution, a government, no, God is. Now, here's what happens, though. 
is that we take the, the righteousness of God and the rightness of God and how that flows out into right and wrong. We take it and we twist it and we bend it right, to suit our own unrighteous desires. This is what Romans chapter one is getting at. Verse 18 says that by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. So we take the truth, what is right and wrong, absolute, according to God, and we suppress it. And then verse 25 says, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. What that describes is that we take the righteousness of God and we bend it and we twist it to satisfy our unrighteous desires. Lee Strobel, he uses the following illustration to highlight the, the moral rebellion that makes clear truths of scripture much more ambiguous than they are. And I think you'll, if you're a teenager, don't follow this, okay? Imagine a daughter and her boyfriend going out for a Coke on a school night. The father says to her, you must be home before 11. It gets to be 1045 and the two of them are still having a great time. They don't want the evening to end. So suddenly they begin to have difficulty interpreting the father's instructions. What did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us? Or was he talking about you in a, in a general sense, like people in general? Was he saying, in effect, as a general rule, people must be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, he wasn't very clear, was he? And what did he mean by, you must be home before 11? Would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible? He probably means it as a suggestion. I know he loves me. So isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And if I'm having fun, then he wouldn't want me to end the evening so soon. And what did he mean by, you must be home before 11? He didn't specify who's home. It could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is. My heart is right here. So doesn't that mean I'm already home? And what did he really mean when he said you must be home before 11? Did, did he mean that in an exact literal sense? Besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And he wasn't really clear on whether he was talking about Central Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time. In Hawaii, it's still only quarter to seven. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it's always before 11. Whatever time it is, it's always before the next 11. So with all of these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. Listen, before we get to how God accomplishes justice in this world, we have to settle on the fact that, that justice flows out of God's character. That what God says is right and wrong flows out of his perfect, just, and holy character. And we have to understand the propensity of our hearts, Romans chapter one, to take what he says and just and twist it and bend it to satisfy our own unrighteous desires. So how does the cross accomplish God's justice in the world? First, God is justice. 
He is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. And everything that flows out of his heart into moral laws and how we should live is a, is a, is a result of who he is. And he can't deny himself. So God is the author of justice. Second, let's explore the need for justice. Why do we need it? Why do we need justice? Well, we started to touch on it a little bit in Romans 1, right? That we, we twist and bend God's righteousness to fit our own unrighteous desires. But Paul summarizes the human problem pretty succinctly in verse 23. And he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is his holy and righteous presence. And so all have sinned and fall short of that holy, righteous presence of God. And Romans 3.23 is a conclusion to what Paul has laid out in Romans 1 and 2. Where in Romans 1 and 2, he describes the different ways that we fall short. So he starts in Romans 1, verses 29 to 31, describing the, the immoral person, right? The sexually immoral, evil, murderer, deceitful, haters of God, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, you, you hear that description and go, yes, that person has fallen short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes to the first half of Romans 2, and he describes the, the moral hypocrite. So he describes the person that sees God uh, uh, breathe indictment on the immoral person, and that person's applauding and clapping and saying, yes. And then God says, no, you're not off the hook either. Verse three of chapter two, he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? But Paul doesn't even stop there. The second half of Romans two, he moves on from the, the moral hypocrite to the religious moral hypocrite. And here he speaks directly to the Jews, right? Who, who not only are moral hypocrites, meaning they judge people for doing things that they do themselves, but now you add on the religiosity that they, they believe that they were, um, they were favored by God because they received the promises and they received the law of God. And so what we see here is Paul lays out the immoral person. He lays out the moral person who's hypocritical and he lays out the religious moral person who's hypocritical. And at the end of that, he says in Romans 3.10, what's the conclusion? None is righteous. And you say, how can that be? How can that be? How can the, 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 the good moral religious person be unrighteous. The prophet Isaiah um, describes this person when he's speaking to God's people, the Jews, who are described in the second half of Romans 2. And he says, and, and Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, meaning all of our best efforts, even our best moral efforts, our best religious efforts are like a, a dirty bloody minstrel cloth. That's literally what he says in Isaiah. And you say, wait a minute, I don't get it. Listen, compared to God's glory and perfection, that's why we started with the righteousness of God. Perfect, just, righteous, holy. Compared to the glory and perfection of God, we have all fallen short. Think about it this way. Think about you and a friend deciding you're going to jump across the Grand Canyon. And so you pick that part of the canyon, it's a, it's a, it's a mile wide, 5,280 feet. 
And just for the purposes of this illustration, I want you to imagine on the other side is the glory, the perfection and the glory of God. So you and your friend back way up and you sprint as fast as you can and you jump off the edge. Your friend makes it six feet out. You make it 10 feet out. And as you're both plunging to your death, you say to your friend, I beat you. I jumped 10 feet. And then you hear, you look up and and somebody was right after you and they jumped off and they jumped 15 feet and they're bragging at you. I jumped 15 feet, you only jumped 10. Ha! What a tragedy that would be. Would it not? It doesn't matter if you jump 5, 10, 15 feet. You fall well short of 5,280 feet. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Paul's saying. And here's where it comes home. He's saying this. And this is what's so shocking about the statement. Is that if you're a God-hater and you're faithless and you're immoral and you're a really good person, and you're a really religious person, and you're really a model citizen, apart from faith, you stand on the same unrighteous platform before God. And that was what was so shocking, what was so shocking for the Jews to hear from Paul on this. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter if you're the immoral person, the moral hypocrite, or the religious moral hypocrite. You all fall so far short of this glory and perfection of God. You're on the same unrighteous platform. And what that means is that justice is not just needed out there. We talk about judgment and justice, and all of us want justice. There's not a person in this room, in this world, that doesn't long for justice but we want it out there. And what Paul is saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh yeah, justice is needed out there, but it's needed in here, in your heart. Every human being needs to be made right. See, the Jews were expecting Paul, right? And expecting Jesus, right? To to come and to bring justice by what? Removing the Romans and the Gentiles and setting up the kingdom of God. And Paul came and said, no, 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 no. The Gentiles need to be made right. Yes, but so do you, Jew. You stand on the same unrighteous platform. See, the, the, the human problem of us trying to patch up our rightness, righteousness and judging the next person, right, of jumping off the Grand Canyon and jumping 10 feet instead of eight feet so that we can feel better than the person who jumped eight feet Right? That tendency of patching up our self-righteousness and judging someone else is the problem with our world. I want you to see that. Look at any problem in the world, violence, murder, genocide, racism, elitism, whatever ism you want to call it, the problem we have in our world, it all comes back to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Let me just try to say this in street language. The world would be fixed and be a much better place if everyone was like me. 
The world would be a much better place and the world would be fixed if everyone was like me and adopted my values, my standards, my perspectives. That's self-righteousness. And at the worst, that leads to, guess what? If you don't adopt my standards and perspectives and values and ideals, I'm gonna kill you. That's the extreme. But it explains all the problems we have in our world. We need justice in the world because there's a need for justice in the human heart. Now, this leads to our final point. How does God, how does the cross accomplish God's justice in the world? We've looked at the author of justice, the need for it, and now let's look at the execution of justice. How does God actually execute justice in his world? How does he make the world right? Look at verse 24. And this follows verse 23. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now the word justified here, it's the same root word in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek as righteousness. So it could read and are righteousified by his grace. The word justified means to be declared righteous, not to be made righteous. That's a category, but that's called sanctification over time. Justification is courtroom language. It's, it's speaking of a judge, right, who pounds the gavel and delivers a guilty or not guilty verdict. And that the person on trial, right, receives a new legal standing. Justification means that God pounds the gavel and declares you not guilty, innocent, so that you have a new legal standing before him. Now, this raises two questions. Number one, how can God do that and continue to be just? I'm not righteous. How can he declare me to be righteous and, and, and maintain his justness? And the second question is, how do, how do you receive that gift of righteousness or that declaration over you? Let's start with the first question. How can God do this? I, I want you to see the tension here, right? God declares you righteous. It's a new legal standing. And you say, wait a minute. I'm, I don't live righteously. I'm, I'm sinful. I'm not perfect. Right? How can God do that and remain just? Right? It's, the, it's the tension that we see throughout the, the scriptures. If, let me just put it in courtroom language, uh, if a judge pounded the gavel and declared a criminal who everyone knew was guilty, if that judge declared him not guilty, you'd say, that's an unjust judge. So how in the world can God pound the gavel and declare me righteous when <laughs> I'm clearly guilty? Verse 25. In verse 25, the word for propitiation, which if you're reading from an NIV translation, it will be sacrifice of atonement. That word in the Greek appears one other time in the New Testament. And that's in Hebrews chapter nine, verse five. It says, above the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim of glory, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, Mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5 and propitiation in Romans 3.25 are the same exact 
word. What does this mean? In Hebrews 9, the author is describing the architecture of the Ark of the Covenant, which was that place where, where God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies. The architecture of the Ark of the Covenant resolves this tension that we feel with how can God declare you righteous and remain just. There were three main parts of the Ark of the Covenant. You had inside the box were the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. Then you had the lid on top of the Ark, which was called the mercy seat. Then over the top of the mercy seat, you had the cherubim of glory, representing God's glory, his righteousness, his perfection, right, looking over this. And once a year, the priest, the high priest, would come into the Holy of Holies with blood from an animal that was sacrificed, and he would sprinkle it over top of the mercy seat. Now, Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 9.5 tells us that the mercy seat is Jesus Christ. Now, now listen to what this means. As God, represented by the cherubim of glory, looks down on the broken Ten Commandments, you and I have been broken them over and over. As he looks down on those broken Ten Commandments, what does he see? So he doesn't see the broken commandments. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ takes away his wrath, satisfies his wrath, satisfies justice so that the tension is resolved, right? In the Old Testament, what was the tension? If God honors his holiness, then he's gonna have to punish sin. He's gonna have to wipe out his people. Then what about his love? Or if God honors his love and mercy, and just sweeps sin under the carpet and doesn't deal with sin, then what about his holiness? You see, at the cross, Jesus Christ, the mercy seat, mercy and justice kiss. Justice is satisfied without God losing you and me, but at great cost to himself, losing his son, Jesus. That is how God can declare you righteous, new legal standing, instantaneous action, not something that's worked out over time. Instantaneous, that's how he can declare you righteous without forfeiting his own justice because it was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, this leads to the second question. How do you receive this gift, this declaration? It's not automatic. That's, that's very important to understand. It's not automatic. This doesn't just get applied to every person on the face of the earth. So how is it received? It's received as a gift, as Romans 3, Romans 3 tells us. It's a gift. And just like any gift, whether it's birthday or Christmas, you don't, you don't work for it. It's free, but you, ha you have to receive it, right? You have to receive it. So how do you receive it? Over and over in this passage and continuing into chapter 4, Paul, Paul talks about how this is received not by works, but by faith. You're justified, declared righteous by faith, not by works. Faith, faith, faith. Let me just read you through the passage. Verse 22, righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, one who is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Verse 30, 
will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So if this gift of righteousness, if this declaration is received by faith, then we better understand what faith is. What is faith? Simply put, it means to believe, to trust. But let me, let me explain this. Imagine that uh, you see two people ice skating on a frozen pond up north or a frozen pond in Jacksonville this past week because it got so cold, okay? Two people are ice skating on a frozen pond. One of them's out in the middle of the pond. They're, they're skiing around. They're doing jumps, twirls, confident as can be. The other ice skater is barely off the edge, onto the edge of the ice, shuffling out, knees trembling, legs shaking, wondering if the ice is going to hold. Now, what keeps both of those skaters from plunging into the, the deadly icy waters below? It's not their confidence or their lack thereof. No, it's the ice. In the same way, it's not your strong or weak faith that saves you from God's wrath. It's the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And why I say that is because so often we talk about faith in quantitative terms, like you've got a lot of faith or you've got a little faith. No, no, faith is simply the instrument by which you receive this gift. Jesus Christ saves you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And that exchange happens by faith. And it's simply the instrument by which you receive it. So the question is, do you believe? Not, not do you feel, not do you feel this moment that you're really close to Jesus, but do you believe? That's what the scriptures say. Do you believe and do you trust? Are you standing on Jesus, recognizing that where you're at in life, your, 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 um, your confidence can be really strong or can be weak at different times? Your faith can be trembling at times. Your faith can be robust at times, right? Do you believe? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? Are you standing on him? So let me close back where I started. How does the cross accomplish God's justice in the world? You know, every four years, roughly half of the United States population is disappointed at a presidential election, somewhere around half. All hope is gone. There's nothing new under the sun. Right? The Jews were expecting a political Messiah. They were expecting Jesus Christ to come to wipe out the Romans, to clear out the Gentiles, to, to set up the kingdom of God. They were expecting a political Messiah. And guess what? Jesus over and over rejected that identity. And when he rejected it, they rejected him. And then the, the pinnacle of it was when he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, all hope was lost at this world being made right. And what they didn't realize is that it was through the cross that God was accomplishing his justice, through the cross that he was accomplishing justice. And that through the cross, he was making his world right. And that today, through the cross of Jesus Christ, he's making this world right. 
And so we boast. Not in our education. Not in our political leaders. Not in our intellect. Not in our religious efforts. Not even in our best moral efforts. We boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for boasting in anything but the cross? Father, would you forgive us for patching up our righteousness in such a way that we can judge and and look down on someone else to feel better about ourselves? Father, would you drill into our hearts by your Holy Spirit the truth that we are declared righteous in your sight, holy and blameless, not by our merits, not by what we've done, but solely by what your son Jesus Christ has done. And Father, would we receive that day by day by faith? And I pray for maybe some of those here who have never quite understood this, who has always thought that they have, to, they have to somehow work to gain your favor or somehow be good enough to, to, to be declared righteous. Father, you would free them from that and they would see this morning that you declare righteous, that you justify by grace through faith. I pray, Father, for that person or those people that they might this morning trust Jesus, believe Jesus. Father, as we close in worship this morning, would you ignite our hearts to the truth of the, of the cross and of the gospel, that you're a just God, you're righteous, perfect, and holy. And yet in your, your immense love, In your immense wisdom, you found a way to satisfy your justice and yet not lose us, but instead by losing your son. And would we be a grateful people that in the heels of that boast in nothing else but the cross and but Christ crucified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.